make sure whatever you're doing that it's as narrow as possible and then narrow it even more. I'm Jim Huffman, and this is If I Was Starting Today, a collection of conversations about half-baked startup ideas, growth tactics, and stories from founders, including my own journey as a business owner. All of the content is centered around one question. What would you do if you were starting today? Today on the podcast, you're getting a two-for-one deal here. Um, we're starting off where I'm bringing my business partner, Jonathan, on to give our update on the $3 million challenge where we're trying to grow three companies to over seven figures. And then the second half, uh, I actually bring on two VCs from Metaprop out of New York, Zach Ahrens and Aaron Block. And they kind of give the story of how they went from angel investing in New York and then kind of going up funnel and eventually starting their own venture capital firm with a focus on technology in and around real estate. So it's a really cool story for anybody that's looking to get into startup investing. There's a lot to be learned there. So hope you enjoy today's episode. All right. It is, um, let's see, it is March 15th and I'm bringing on my business partner, um, Jonathan, because we're going to do our monthly update on the $3 million challenge. And so for those that don't know, Jonathan and I have a growth marketing consultancy called Growth Hit, where we work with, you know, DC companies being their growth team for hire. But when we want to grow up, we want to have a startup studio. And the $3 million challenge is our path to do that. And what it means is, our goal is to stand up three different companies and hit seven figures with each of those companies. So one is an agency, which we've already done that with Growth Hit. A second is a e-commerce company, a direct-to-consumer company. And we've already announced this one. This is Handsome Chaos. We'll give an update on that one. And the third one, we actually talked about it last time, but we have, we've changed the name. We have a, a much better name that we'll talk about. Well, maybe it's better. I don't know. Um, and this is a company where the goal is for it to be a SaaS software as a service product, but we're actually starting it as a productized service to prove the value with the hope of it turning into a SaaS. And it is called One Day Design that we'll get into. But Jonathan, welcome. Are you excited for our, our monthly update? Yeah, I'm, I'm super excited. I don't know how many of these we've done, um, maybe three or four so far, but it's definitely one of my uh, favorite episodes to do. So glad to give everyone a quick brief on uh, where we are with all these initiatives. Yeah. And, um, and I do an up, a daily update on this on Twitter at the end of the day, I post updates and we, we've had some highs and lows. I will say you're catching us on a high. So this is going to be a very upbeat, positive conversation. Whereas two weeks ago, at least with the DTC brand, I was, I was a little bit at rock bottom. So we'll, we'll start with handsome chaos. And so handsome chaos, it's a men's grooming product where it is the love child of pomade and women's dry shampoo, because I'm a dude with long hair. All the products I use like gels and pomades just make it oily and gross. I want a product that actually makes it look dry and natural. So we've actually concocted something. And here's the good news is like leading up to this, we, we created a website, we've sent ads, we've we think we've not necessarily validated, but we have signals that there's traction here. We pre-sold 10 very quickly. We got a thousand people on the wait list. So we think the concept is there, but something that Jonathan's really been holding my feet to the fire on is we've got to make this product and we've got to get in people's hands to make sure it delivers. So I'll make sure easy enough, I'll, I'll manufacture a product. What can be hard about that? It has been since August manufacturing this product. We are at iteration 12. And the thing that I, I am proud of myself is that I keep sending it back because it's not right. And even my wife's like, wow, I'm impressed with how you're scrutinizing this. But it's also exhausting because I get so excited when a new prototype shows up and then I'll use it and I immediately throw it in the trash because I'm unhappy with it. However, we had a huge breakthrough this weekend. I got one. I was a little skeptical and I used it and I was like, holy smokes, this thing works. So I'm, I'm currently in the process of testing it when I have hair like right out of the shower where it's like clean and dry. I'm now testing it like after I've gone on a nice run and maybe not showered for a few days, some sacrifices my family has to endure to really test it. But 
dude, I am, I'm on a high right now. I'm optimistic that this thing is working. So what I'm trying to do now is I'm going to give out some samples to some people that I know will give me honest feedback, but um, we aren't just in the ballpark, man. We are, we are in the the same room of where I want this to be. So I, I think we're getting closer, but that's the update on handsome chaos. But it also means that I've kind of paused a lot of the pre-launch stuff because I wanted to dial in this prototype. But once we have it dialed in, I'm going to be going back into growth mode. But you have anything else on Handsome Chaos on, on the update there? Yeah, I like that you're validating the product because as we know from all the experience we have dealing with clients, the best form of marketing is a killer product, something that works. People will come back to, will tell other people about. So, and you obviously, um, you're your own customer. So you have a huge advantage in that sense. Uh, I'm glad to see that. And uh, hopefully by uh, the next update, we can talk about the feedback that people will give. So very interesting, very eager to hear that. Yeah. And hopefully you'll, you'll start to make some sacrifices and grow your hair out so you can be a consumer as well, but we'll see in, in due time. <laughs> Absolutely. Looking forward to that. You and I can have matching haircuts. So it's what most partners should be doing. Um, all right, let's get to the second product, one day design. So first, Jonathan, what's the pitch? What What is this thing called one day design? Yeah, so you kind of stole the thunder there. Uh, we, uh, <laughs> I was hoping you'd open it as uh, design hits so I can correct you and go back to the, the actual title. Uh, if you remember from the previous update, the name was design hit. That's because we are growth hit and design hit is logical. The more time we spent with it, it just creates more confusion and raises more questions than uh, than answers. And some of the best naming conventions for, for companies, I mean, there are many books written on this topic, but titles that like literally summarize what the, the essence of the company is and what it does are the best performing. It's really the first step of marketing is telling people who you are. And if your name does that for you, you're already like a long way in. So we went with one day design. It's a pretty attractive name. It tells you what it does. And it's a, the offer is in the name as well. It's like, we will design something for you in one day. And we're in the design space. Um, so we definitely understand how appealing this positioning is in the marketplace. So we, we decided to go with it. And to be honest with you, uh, whenever I've seen um, even our own colleagues understand the, the, the value and how powerful this offer is, there's like a switch that goes off. And that's the, the kind of response I want. And if we can get that kind of response when they hear the name, can you imagine what happens when our process and our deliverables are, are presented to clients? So I'm very excited about everything that we've done so far. It's essentially a service that will reduce the cost of design that converts, not just design for its own sake, but design that converts because that's our specialty. The design for landing pages, ads, and emails, we will deliver it in one day, which is the really bold promise that makes all of this work. And most clients that hear this have been through the painful process of many rounds of iterations with designers. They get pages that either look good or don't convert or convert, but don't look good. So we are trying to strike the, the middle there. And uh, we feel very confident because we have everything to execute. We're not building any anything new um, that we don't currently have. And it's for clients who um, can't afford our full retainer. So can't afford our full team, uh, our growth marketing team, the um, the outsourced growth team that we uh, that growth it is. But this is an offer. It's very cost effective, delivers value, and is really in the sweet spot for a lot of the, the leads we get uh, as an agency. And I think the name was really something that we both discussed. It took us a while to come up with it, but I think I'm glad we did. And we'll see how that goes. And just recently, we closed our first lead, um, our first lead into a customer, a very interesting company. And we just had their onboarding call, actually. I think what I've noticed through this is this has been our form of validation. The same way, Jim, like with Handsome Chaos, you're now sending out these products to a few people to test. We tested it on that first client or prospect, I should say, at that stage. And their initial response, we were really their dream, uh, that we were really the response or the, uh, the the solution to their biggest problems, which is getting a page up and running very quickly that validates their product and gives them confidence to, to proceed. So just helping a founder like that with a solution has just given us a lot of confidence. And the, the onboarding process has gone smoothly. So we're super excited about this whole thing at a high level and as we continue to close more, more clients and scale the service, we'll obviously share more updates on future monthly calls. But so far, so good. Everything is going well on that front. Yeah. And even to talk about, you know, where our head is at right now is, you know, it's like, can we validate this idea? And to put even more color to it, it's 
you know, design something 24 hours and we're leaning into a landing page. We can get you a landing page in under 24 hours for right now, $12.99. And that's really interesting to people because one, it's faster than most design firms or freelancers. And two, it's more cost effective because usually when you're thinking of designs, you know, you have these big expensive agencies that can cost you know, or companies can cost 15 to 20 grand and they're not even designed to convert. And the way we're able to do that is we have so many reps from running conversion rate optimization experiments across landing pages and websites. We're sitting on this archive of a million templates that we've proven have worked. And so we're like, man, we'd love to do something with this. So if we can partner with a client that, you know, has, you know, a website that aligns with our templates, we can customize 50 to 20% of it in a very quick way towards unique to them, but it also has the backbone of something that converts. And so that that's essentially the unfair advantage that we have that we're looking to double down. And also where we aren't a technical firm where we have technical chops, we have really good process skills. And that's something Jonathan's team's been working on. So again, we talk about this, like, where do you have an unfair advantage? Where do you don't? Because you want to play in that game where you do. Here's what we're really trying to figure out. We know we can convert landing pages at that price. We've already done four. And, and that's amazing. But this business model doesn't work if we're just in the acquisition game, right? Because, man, we got to close... A lot of companies to do one landing page. What we're excited about are these different packages that we're testing where, hey, is it one landing page? Is it, hey, enough pages for to redo your entire site? Instead of doing a site redesign, update five pages that include your templates and do a site redesign for under five grand. And that's interesting. But what I'm the most excited about are these recurring packages where we can essentially be someone's design team in a box where we don't just have landing pages, but we have email templates and ad templates where we could be on retainer and help people. And also one thing that Jonathan and I are seeing is people also want dev help. Like, hey, that's great. You did the design, but who's going to take it live? We have developers that can do that. We're we're a little hesitant to get into the tech stack because we know how messy that can be. So we're looking to pilot that as well, where on a recurring basis, we can be your design and dev team that's doing this work for you. So as we're validating not just the, you know, the one landing page designs, we're really interested to see what are these recurring packages, the one add value to clients, but for us, make us super sticky so we can you know, have long-term relationships. Beyond that, I don't know if you want to give any thoughts or comments on how to think about validating these different packages. You hit it on the head there. Like Dev is literally one of the the worst things for especially non-technical founders to deal with. And if we can be the the full package that takes the designs that converts, which is step one, the one thing we really want, we do a clean handoff with dev and we also manage that process. And we essentially handle the entire process of getting a page designed and dev and and live for them. That's huge. And um, I remember talking with one of the prospects and that definitely sounded very appealing. And we've created this stair-step system as well, where initially we have this very low low bar, very attractive offer, as Jim said earlier, to start us and test us for $12.99. That's very low downside. And it's almost still a no-brainer offer because they see the outcome of our design in 24 hours. But then there's still these more valuable, higher price tiers that allow us to generate more revenue from these clients, also add more value to them. And... Um, that's also very attractive. And obviously this still has to be tested. It's still early stages, but it's knowing what we do. Uh, I think the one advantage that I really wanted to point out that I have doing one day design that maybe you don't with, with Handsome Chaos is we are actually working in a process that's already been built. We know these clients, we work with them all the time. We know what their pain points are. We don't have to venture out and try to find people to validate our product on. So we have that unfair advantage getting started. And I think that's definitely gonna serve us going forward. Yeah. And as we think of like a startup studio, it's like you validate an idea, you come up with this go-to-market strategy, and then you spin it out. And I feel like the validation is coming quite quickly. And now we have to really think through how do we launch this and how do we, you know, spin this out? Because one thing that I realized, growth isn't easy and growth isn't cheap. We will need to beef up on people, designers, maybe a, a customer client success person. And, and when do we hire that? 
Because I think once we do our launch strategy, I think it will be well received, but can we even handle that? And how do we want to like roll this out to make sure it's one, delivering the value, but two, it, it creates the business model we want where it's more retention than acquisition. Um, but that's something where my head is at because we don't have some huge fund for our startup studio. It comes from our profits from our agency. So really, you know, taking this incremental approach. So every everything we're investing to, into it is is intentional and, and, and thoughtful um, is, is where my head is going. Yeah, absolutely agree. I think the predictable revenue of the monthly retainers will help us scale, project forward, hire the right manpower to to, to satisfy the the demand, and that's that's definitely the ideal path to go. And fortunately, we have that as an option. And these are still like even though it's it's lower cost than our full retainer, we're getting a decent amount uh, for these tiers. So uh, we'll be rewarded more. I think the the average order value even on this productized service is still a decent amount so we can scale. And even with a, a relatively small client load, we'll reach a pretty significant dollar amount. And I think I will probably beat you to the $1, at least $1 million challenge. Uh, uh, 1 million of that 3 million challenge, I think I'll get there faster than you. I, I have to get a few far less clients than you do. You probably have to do like maybe an order of magnitude more than I do. So I have that advantage over you. Yeah, selling something for twelve, uh, like twelve hundred bucks or thirteen hundred bucks, and then maybe five grand is a little bit better than selling a men's grooming product for twenty nine ninety nine. But um, we'll we'll see which one could have a, a better referral component to it. But um, I will say that's probably not going to handsome chaos. I love the entire business model. It's not fashion, low return rate. It's high repeat usage. But the average order value, um, man, I prefer things that are more in the 300 to 500 range for, for e-commerce. Yeah, good call out. And um, actually, a quick thing to add to that, I'm actually secretly falling in love with the with this business model of services where you can charge well into the thousands because you don't need a lot of clients to hit a million dollars. I mean, it's just mm -hmm. math is on my side with this kind of business model. Yeah, and, and the other part, like the issue with D2C is, you have to buy this thing called inventory. You have to have working capital. What's been glorious about one day design is the way we have it set up is you pay up front. So this idea of a cash conversion cycle is really nice. So you're getting that cash to make investments as opposed to buying inventory, running ads, then getting the sale and then having to reinvest in inventory. Could you imagine this productized service, but not being a productized service, but being a SaaS where you don't have to deliver on the work with services. You're just managing technology. I mean, I know I understand the idea of software, but when you actually see it in action and see it as like a profit and loss statement, it's it's really magical. And that's something that, yeah. that's pretty eye-opening. Yep. And that goes back to the wealth ladders. Like next step from a productized service is software. So we're definitely on the right track. Yeah, that's the that's the final destination. Yeah, we shall see. But um, that's the update. And um, the website isn't live yet. Well, actually, when this podcast goes live, it probably will be. And I think we're just going to yeah. have it at the number one daydesign.growthhit.com. Is that right, Jonathan? Is that we're going with? That's correct. Yep. One day design, uh, growth com. That's right. Um, and then Handsome Chaos is handsomechaos.com. But yeah, and we'll be publishing the numbers on how much we're spending on all, and all of this on, it'll be on my Twitter and it's on our newsletter. The Twitter's just Jim W. Huffman. But Jonathan, anything else before we sign out? Nope, that's it. Can't wait to do the next update, but uh, we'll have some interesting updates then most likely. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks, Jim. All right. Um, today on the podcast... I'm bringing on two people who have done something that I potentially would love to do one day, but don't know enough about it. Zach and Aaron, and they own or run a, a venture capital firm, Metaprop. And so we're going to pick their brain to get a lot of insights and advice from them. But uh, uh, gentlemen, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jim. Again, like I said before, this is a three-man pod. We will see how this goes. But um, I don't know. I'd love to go around. If you guys could do a quick introduction of yourselves. Sure. I'll get it started. This is Aaron Block. I'm a, a co-founder along with Zach and managing partner of Metaprop. We're 
prop tech venture capitalists. Uh, we've got four venture capital funds, done 150 investments over the last several years, and are partnered with the biggest names in the real estate industry to invest in tomorrow's technology. And uh, we've been doing it for quite a while. Zach, as he'll explain, was the top investor in this space for, for 10 plus years. And we've got 15 people working on trying to make the real estate space more resilient, more affordable, more sustainable, and more fun through technology. And, uh, and, and that's our firm. My background personally was, was in commercial real estate for 10 years with Cushman and Wakefield and several markets, one of which we won't talk about today. I had an e-commerce business uh, selling and shipping U.S. merchandise abroad. Again, we won't talk about to where. And then uh, uh, the intersection of those two careers, uh, you know, real estate and tech, led me to meeting the great Zach Aarons, whom, by the way, we call the high priest of prop tech, Jim. I don't know if you know that. You are in the presence of prop tech royalty here, the, the, the man of the cloth. I'll let him do himself here. I dream to have a nickname like that one day. So, Zach, good luck following that. Yep, the high priest of prop tech, the alter Rebbe of real estate innovation. I'm Zach Ahrens. I'm co-founder and general partner of Metaprop. I started the firm in 2015 alongside Aaron Block. After a similarly circuitous career that spanned the uh, real estate, venture capital, and early stage startup technology worlds, in the late aughts, I had a tech startup in the travel and tourism business. That's when I learned to become a licensed New York City walking tour guide. Led a lot of tours, had a lot of fun. Couldn't scale that business, uh, but knew I wanted to be in the sector. Uh, Saw a lot of interesting things percolating at the dawn of the last decade here in New York. Uh, I knew I wanted to be a part of it. Didn't know exactly how. Uh, Started dabbling in angel investing. Uh, Also went to work at my dad's company, uh, Millennium Partners, which is a large-scale mixed-use urban infill real estate developer and landlord uh, in America's key gateway cities. And so I uh, just enmeshed myself in this nascent prop tech community, both as a customer, as I was working as a real estate professional, and then as an angel investor uh, during my nights and weekends. And uh, when I went to Columbia Business School, this was in 2011, I had a professor, uh, one of my venture capital courses named Stu Elman, who told me that I should marry these two ideas, venture capital technology with real estate. And that's what I did. That's when I decided I was going to devote my professional life uh, to this vocation, this idea that we were going to tether these two worlds together and serve as a high-functioning information brokerage uh, between the two, and been doing that doing that ever since in a variety of different capacities. Awesome. And so for people that don't know, when, we, when you're saying prop tech, just so we're on the same page, that is property tech, it's um, technology around real estate. Is, is that a fair definition of it? Yeah, different people have different definitions, you know, technology for the built environment, commercial real estate technology, residential real estate technology, architecture, engineering, construction technology. We think prop tech is a great name and catchy. That's why it is our reference point of choice. Uh, But we accept all names for what we do. The core tenet of what we do is that we believe we are in the early innings of a very long ball game of digital transformation across the real estate sector, commercial, residential, built environment, et cetera. And we believe every single process within real estate can be expedited, improved, uh, made more efficient, leveraging technology, mostly software, but can be hardware as well. And so for us, prop tech is any technology, any innovation that touches any participant in what we call the real estate value chain. So that could be a plumber, can be a developer, can be a broker, can be a title agent, can be an insurance underwriter, a loan officer, an architect, et cetera. And then we also diversify by asset type. Real estate is a very idiosyncratic business. Uh, What works to manage a 500 key uh, urban hotel 
is a very different technology system than what works to manage a portfolio of 20,000 single family homes for rent. So once you work through all those permutations, when we were first starting, people said, well, PropTech, you can't, you can't start a whole business based on that. You can't even find, you know, 10 investments for that. But when you start going through these permutations, you start looking at all the players involved in real estate transactions across the value chain. You then look at the idiosyncrasies as they relate to different asset types. And then you look at the geographic distribution where what works uh, in Singapore uh, may not work in Ottawa because there are different data uh, regulations country by country. So once you engage in all those uh, uh, various permutations, you can amass a portfolio that is quite sizable. I kind of want to get to this idea where you both have a little bit of an unfair advantage in your background whenever you you take a VC fund and you point it in this direction, right? Because if you went broad, maybe you wouldn't have as much of an advantage if it's in some other space. But both of you, like one, have the background and in, in for lack of a better phrase, we'll just call it real estate. But it's also kind of nerve wracking as you're creating your investment thesis, be like, all right, we are only going to focus on this. If there's any concern that there weren't enough opportunities, but like, Zach, to your point, there's clearly quite a bit. Well, was that ever an issue as you're figuring out what you're going to hunt on? Was there ever a doubt that you were going to do anything but this focus or was it a no brainer? I would say we're constantly challenging what it means to be within our mandate. As we see opportunities come across our desk, we see 250 opportunities uh, coming across our desk now every single month. So I would say that we saw in 2015 what Alicia Glenn, who used to be the uh, deputy mayor here in New York, used to call the hyphen tech ecosystem. And we saw all of these specialty funds and accelerator programs pop up for things like fashion tech, fintech, probably most notably, that's the sector we track most uh, extensively as sort of a cousin to what we do, education technology, ed tech, health tech, um, but there really was nothing for this sector. So we never had any doubt that the opportunity was going to be large and that we were going to be able to find enough deals to create a pretty sizable practice. And while we have certainly been interested in other types of technologies um, over the years, I would say that we've been comfortable letting go a number of opportunities that we knew would be good investments objectively, but that where we couldn't really move the needle in terms of this information exchange that I was alluding to earlier, where we really couldn't add the same level of value. And so it hasn't been, I don't, know, I don't want to speak for Aaron, but it certainly hasn't been challenging for me over the years to get excited about investments and to say no to, you know, plenty of things that maybe in a previous life I would have just done because they were attractive from an ROI perspective, but uh, they don't really fit with our thesis. I mean, because Aaron, you had done some stuff in e-commerce. I don't know if you potentially get shiny object syndrome. It's like, wow, that'd be a great potential investment, but it's like, it almost makes it better to have those guardrails of just having this focus on, on what you guys do. Yeah, we're really focused on trying to do one thing better than anybody else in the world. I think Zach's investment background and my operating investment background have spanned many different categories um, uh, that, that might appeal to a generalist investor, including e-commerce, as you pointed out. I think really the, to bet the farm on this space, you have to be an insider in those early days. You really have to understand the depth of the problem. You have to have enough relationships back then with industry, with venture, and most importantly, with the entrepreneurial community and ecosystem to really be able to see a little bit ahead of everyone else. And I think we were, you know, extremely lucky and fortunate to be in the center of the universe of, of prop tech at that time. You know, you could argue New York really, really was where it was at. And, and when we founded the business, you know, of course, Silicon Valley important and some stuff going on in Seattle, but really New York was was starting to, to separate from a, an ecosystem development perspective, which gave us an unfair advantage in those early years. Yeah, it's like your background yeah. and your geography, because I would say like New York for fintech and prop tech are probably the, the best cities in the world to be in. Um, so are we going to say something, Zach? 
Yeah, just I would say New York still for the commercial side of what we do, I would say remains the epicenter uh, for residential. You could argue, you know, Seattle or California potentially. But, you know, there are nodes now all over the world. You know, we've done deals in Bogota and Mexico City and Lagos, Nigeria and Seoul, Korea. And PropTech is is on every continent, I joke, except for Antarctica. But it's coming. Yeah, that's right. 2023 Antarctica. The point I wanted to make, though, is that our mandate is broad enough where we get to have our cake and eat it, too, in terms of investment. So we can do e-commerce as long as it is geared toward our industry. So if we back a company that is selling building materials to uh, subcontractors, that is effectively an e-commerce company. You know, people say, well, aren't you upset you don't get to invest in cutting edge frontier tech like machine learning and computer vision and uh, 3D printing and robotics? And I say, well, I get to invest in all those things. We just invested in a robotic painting company out of Chattanooga, Tennessee. We've invested in a uh, 3D printing uh, building facade company. We've invested in countless uh, computer vision uh, companies that that uh, help uh, construction sites uh, become more efficient. So I don't feel like I'm missing out on shiny toys. I feel like I get to play with shiny toys and hopefully make uh, sound, <laughs> thoughtful, DPI-generating investments for our limited partners. Yeah, and, but, and you're doing it with the lens that it's in an, a category that you understand, but it has this tech component on top of it that, that's quite exciting. So I'm, I'm really interested to get your guys' thoughts on two things. So you, I heard like 150 investments. I can only imagine the inbound that you're getting as far as like deal flow. And one thing that I struggle with, I do some very small angel investing and I hate saying no to really smart and talented founders. That is really hard for me. So I'd be interested kind of twofold. Well, we'll start with the first question. Talk to me around like what gets your attention, like in any frameworks you could provide to listeners on as stuff is coming across your desk, it's in that category that you want. What's kind of a process you go through to evaluate if this makes sense for you or not or not? If it's like people, team, like the total addressable market, like all those things people talk about, you guys have so much experience with this. How, how do you approach the, the inbound and what makes a good opportunity or not? It's really pretty formulaic when you start off as early stage investors. Um, you know, everybody thinks you're a tech investor. Everybody thinks you're uh, investigating the deep tech future of, of all these buzzwords. At the end of the day, you know, you're really investing in people at the stage at which we've historically been so dominant, which is that kind of idea stage through Series A initial investments. So we spend a lot of time looking at the team, their history and track record of success in the particular space they're going to attack as well as as well as elsewhere in their in their personal and professional lives. And really a, a depth of understanding of the problem that they're setting out to solve. A lot of these early stage ideas in venture capital are solutions in search of a, of a problem, um, finding folks who really have a handle on, on what they're trying to achieve and, and, and regardless of what the outcome, the actual technology solution may be, who are on a war path to figure out how to get there and are resilient enough to overcome all of the obstacles inherent in an entrepreneurial endeavor, let alone a technology-centric uh, uh, entrepreneurial endeavor, is, is the foundation of what you're looking for. So, you know, we have, of course, deep, you know, we're an institutional investment manager. We've got you know, investment committee and you know, diligence checklists and, and a full team going through and giving everybody uh, the full business here before making investments. But if you really boil it down, Zach, I mean, I would argue that the team is the single most important aspect. Do you agree? Yeah, I think we're seeing what we like about the space right now, especially locally, if you're investing in the United States, is we have a relatively mature market where we have a talent pool of now thousands and thousands of people who have been senior employees at prop tech companies already. And their learning curve for starting their own prop tech company, or you have even better, you have serial entrepreneurs in the space. So someone, you know, sold their business to one of the incumbents, RealPage, CoStar, Zillow. Uh, they wait for the golden handcuffs to come off and then they start their next thing. And those companies are just ready to scale uh, so much faster 
than people who don't really have the context for what they're doing. Uh, in the old days, one used to have to cobble together a prop tech company, take somebody who maybe worked at Google, somebody who maybe worked at JLL, mash them together, <laughs> translate between each other, build technology. Many times that worked, but you're now dealing with a critical mass of people who have spent four or five, maybe even more years at companies like Zillow and RealPage and VTS and Procore and all of these companies where they just have a fundamental understanding of the industry from the get-go and they're really able to hit the ground running. So we like to invest in those types of teams. And then we also like to invest in entrepreneurs who are just coming at it from a completely different perspective, who can really toss cold water on a problem, create a new paradigm potentially for the sector. And, you know, those deals we like to source from outside of our networks. You know, that's why we respond to cold emails uh, and we've actually sourced deals that way before. Um, so we're open to that, but we're also, while being open to those, we're also deeply embedded in a lot of these entrepreneur and executive networks as our portfolio has grown over the years. I just spoke to a founder yesterday who was leaving one of our portfolio companies to start a new thing. And he was a little nervous before he got on the pitch that I was going to be upset <laughs> that he was leaving this other company. But I think part of the Silicon Valley culture is this, you know, you hire really ambitious people. Those people don't stay forever. They eventually want to create value on their own and start their own thing. And so there is a culture of like supporting those people. And we've backed many teams, you know, coming out of places like Procore, coming out of places like VTS, and the support they get from the community is 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 really powerful. That's really good advice. Advice I think for people listening, it's like team is so important. Obviously, like market and idea and, and timing is important, but the the team can navigate that. You like the the been there, done that, or the person that got the training ground by being a part of these high growth prop tech companies, and then they're ready to go do their own thing. And that's nice for you too, because you don't also have to like invest in the learning curve that they're going to have to overcome. So that's helpful. You're telling people how eventually they can get funded by yourself. Um, any other stories, even to go like a step further, because um, you've done 150 investment now. Um, I, I was even looking at through some of your companies. Like we actually worked with Morty in the past. That's a super strong team. Any colorful examples of teams that got your attention with some of these frameworks you're talking about? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, I can I can speak to a couple coming out of some of the networks I've spoken about. Uh, so we funded two companies coming out of the sort of Procore alumni network. Um, one company is called Brick. They're actually based in Santa Barbara, right across the street from Procore. So really interesting. If you want to talk about microclusters, Santa Barbara, California has Procore, Brick, a big Autodesk presence now, Yardi, and Appfolio are all based in very short distance of each other in a relatively small city. So you do see these sort of micro nodes really popping up, uh, which is exciting for the sector. But anyway, this was a company started by an executive who was a sort of legendary salesperson at Procore. And so he had a really good idea of how to engage with the CFOs, the general contractors, and feed them actionable insights on their financial data and their project management data. And so we knew he was going to, he had the relationships and he was able to recruit really good technology people and product people. It's really important for us to support immigrant founders. Uh, that's something I, I serve on the board of the Lower East Side Tenement Museum here in New York. Um, you know, we're firm believers. We're all descended, you know, all of us uh, U.S. citizens descended in some way from immigrants. And so this particular gentleman, Basim Hamdi, he's, he's, he's an immigrant as well, coming out of Procore. So, so we backed that business uh, and it's grown very, very nicely for us. Uh, another business that came out of Procore um, also immigrant founded, uh, uh, the CEO's name is Nyasha Gutsa. He's an uh, immigrant from Zimbabwe. And he was uh, on the product side at Procore. And um, everybody thought he was just fantastic. Uh, the product he was working on 
didn't really get the the sort of level of funding uh, that and and attention. They had sort of other priorities. So he left and started his own company in the construction insurance space. It's called Billy. And uh, he was able to recruit a lot of people on the technical side, sales side, product side from his former uh, Procore connections. And so those are two examples where we've essentially leveraged a network of what's now a publicly traded Decacorn company that's had thousands of employees to pull from in the past and funded. And, and in both cases, we are pre-seed, pre-product in these companies. Okay, So we are really just going based on the reputation of these people. You know, One, we knew was really strong on the sales side. So what's our job coming into a round like that? Well, let's get this company the support they need on the product side and the technical side. And then the other side of the coin with Billy was, we knew the team was strong on the product side. Let's go in and help them recruit on the business side. So that's just a little window into how how we look. But, you know, I, I, I love all 150 of my children equally, so I can't, <laughs> can't speak too kindly or negatively about any one of them. Of course you do. The love uh, does not divide, it multiplies. I, uh, I totally believe you. One thing you hit on, though, it sounds like both of those founders were expert recruiters as far as being magnets for talent. I see that these founders with big ideas, you, you can't compete with like Google or Amazon and what you can offer people with packages. But if you can really like rally them around like a mission, that can be huge. And it's something even as I like have a small business, like the hardest sales job I have sometimes is like trying to get amazing talent from people that can pay significantly more than myself. And so it seems like both of those founders had that kind of secret sauce, which is important. So I'm a founder. I'm launching a prop tech company. What what are startups you wish existed? Or what are like things you'd be excited to see come to fruition in the next few years? And it could even be things that are that are already happening, but you guys see so much. What are things you're excited about? If it's anything like on the operations side or just innovative technologies as, as it bolts on to real estate, but where's your guys' head at? I'm excited by everything that excites Zach Aaron's. Um, just dialed down a little bit because I can't see that far into the future. But I'm very fortunate to, to sit in an investment committee and be involved in these transactions. We're really at the tip of the spear here, right? Um, it, we, we've gotten very good at saying no over the years. You know, in fact, a couple hundred plus times a month we have to say no. Um, and I, I relish my role as one of the axemen here in the in the investment committee. I think Zach relishes, if I can speak for him a little bit, the role of, of being able to see the future and making those contrarian bets where other people don't see it. So I think you'll get a heck of a lot more for your audience out of hearing what, what he likes than what I don't like. The, the axeman and the priest. All right, Zach, get, like, give it to us. Where's your head at? What are you excited about? We are increasingly excited about international trends. We see a lot of emerging markets right now. We see a lot of emerging markets experiencing adoption curves that are steeper and more accelerated than we had in this country. But we have the benefit of having uh, hindsight on the, some of those trends in the US that we can apply somewhat as foresight in these markets. So increasingly, we're looking at technologies, very basic things for developing markets, technologies that help tenants pay their rent easily, technologies that help, uh, you know, the equivalent of Morty, for example, right? Morty launched in 2016, we first put money in, um, it's now a mature business. We've seen a lot. We, we, we think that similar types of companies are going to proliferate in markets that are developing right now, whether that's Mexico, Colombia, Brazil, um, Southeast Asia, um, West Africa, et cetera, et cetera. So, so to dumb it down, it's, it's like you're seeing like, hey, this is working in more developed countries like the U.S. or progressive countries. The time is coming for these other countries where it's going to be adopted and and really like have some like um, some growth in those markets, which makes a lot of sense. Yeah, and you also have the idea of leapfrogging. You know, as frustrating as 
the incumbent banks' online infrastructure is in the United States. And one can argue that, oh, you know, the interface of new financial products like Chime and Robinhood is so much better. The incumbents at least have their own platforms. You know, you go to some of these new markets and the incumbents are still um, in person. So if you want to get a mortgage in Lagos, Nigeria, you have to walk into a bank. None of the leading incumbent banks there even have um, digital tools for uh, getting pre-qualified for mortgage. So there is the opportunity in some of these developing markets to essentially leapfrog the incumbents and grow market share even faster than, you know, startups were consolidating market share here in the U.S. The risk is obviously when you invest internationally, there are uh, FX risks, right? You don't want the currency that you're investing in to massively depreciate relative to the USD because we have to pay our investors back in USD, right? And then as we're unfortunately seeing right now, um, geopolitical uh, tensions are rising globally and that and that has to be underwritten into any deal. You know, I think one theme we're looking at increasingly domestically is is we're, we're, we're finally seeing a explosion again in architecture design technology. Um, you know, it, it, there hasn't been a whole lot of innovation since CAD proliferated in the, in the early and mid 80s. Um, but we're investing very heavily in that. We're very excited about it. Um, commercial mortgage is something we think will follow residential mortgage. There's been a lot of, you know, per our conversation about Morty, lots of innovation in residential mortgage, less so on the commercial side. Um, that makes sense. The, the, the uh, deals are more complex, um, more idiosyncratic, but, but we think that's coming. And then there are still, you know, certain subsectors within the industry that don't have any technology at all, you know, still pen, paper, and abacus. We, we invested, for example, in a technology for the environmental consulting industry, which when I used to be a real estate developer, I was on the phone with these environmental consultants every day. So it's a huge part of what we do in the real estate business, although it's hyper-specialized and it's not, um, it's not a part of the real estate business that's seen by the end consumer necessarily. But for insiders, it's a huge issue. And so we invest in a software business tackling that market. I think the risk, you know, just like going international has risk, going increasingly more and more niche carries its own bag of risk as well, where, you know, ultimately, how large are these total addressable markets? And, and those things, you know, remain to be seen. That's why, that's why we play the game. There's some fun ideas in there around, you know, international opportunities, um, ideas around going niche where they might be antiquated in what they do and you can bring technology to it so they can do their job faster or more cost effectively um, with opportunities there. Um, it is interesting hearing in like innovations on top of CAD. Any other things around like, I guess two things, like things going on in the market, like during the pandemic, post pandemic opportunities will be arising in real estate. I don't know if there's a shift of like, you know, remote workers being back in the office versus not how that impacts your industry. And then maybe even a second um, one would be anything around tech. You did even mention like robotics, machine learning, AI. There has to be ways that'll be impacting the real estate industry. And, and maybe this is a dud of a question, but any of those things that you're starting to see like opportunities arise, you're like, oh, wow, I didn't think that was going to exist, but that's really making sense. Yeah, I would say we're seeing the automation that we were promised years ago actually starting to happen and actually improving uh, and expediting processes and then also improving um, operating margins of the companies that are producing these products. I think, you know, some of the developments we've seen in robotic process automation, companies like UiPath exploding, going public, those are beneficial to the real estate industry in terms of actually realizing tangible results from process automation that has just been sort of a promise in the sector for a long time. Um, so yeah, definitely, definitely bullish on, on that. 
you know, uh, computer vision we've been bullish on for a long time. I think computer vision is fundamental to things like um, spotting uh, uh, a compliance, uh, safety on a construction site. I think in terms of creating things like uh, site surveying, um, computer vision's increasingly showing that it can reduce uh, time both in the field and at your desk uh, significantly. And then I, you're finally seeing robotics and 3D printing produce real results as well. You have companies 3D printing homes uh, at scale. You have companies 3D printing facades at scale. You have new models for panelized and modularized uh, multifamily structures. We have some exposure to that as well. So, you know, there's quite a bit that's happening right now for real. Whereas when we first started investing, we were hopeful it was going to happen, but we're very much investing along a thesis trend where we say, oh, well, we've seen we've seen these sort of buzzword trends create real value in other sectors like fintech and medtech. And so it's it's sort of a eventuality that it will migrate to our sector. But again, until you see something happening or have seen it happened, right? You can't say it will uh, with with any uh, uh, certainty that it will. So, so that's been a, I would say, positive development for us. Uh, of course, we wish it could happen faster. You know, return to work uh, has played a big part in that. You know, I think everybody realized that they have to go back to a hybrid environment and technology is the only way to track uh, that in order to maintain any modicum of good management and efficiency within and communication within organizations. So technology has to underpin, okay, who's in the office? How's the office physically being configured, right, to meet the needs of those people? Who's not in the office? How are they communicating with the people who are in the office? Is everybody safe in the office? Is anybody sick in the office? Is the air quality good in the office? Are people getting their lattes delivered to them in the office? Do they have a yoga <laughs> class to go to? Um, in the office, et cetera, et cetera, all these things becoming increasingly more important. So when we hear that commercial real estate is dead, we kind of chuckle. In our view, in the new hybrid environment, organizations actually need the same amount of space, maybe even more space, because you need different types of space. You need space to do more offsites. You need space for your main meetings. You need little micro areas, if you have clusters of employees forming in specific jurisdictions. So there are some scenarios where huge bloated companies will be able to reduce their footprint, reduce their um, uh, cost on real estate. But for mid-sized companies and small companies, unfortunately, like Metaprop, we may even need more space than we had before the pandemic. It's just getting used less frequently it needs to be more flexible and it needs to be used differently and it needs to be completely techified out the wazoo. That, that's such an interesting one. I'm out here in Seattle, my wife works at Amazon and just seeing how they're kind of going back and forth of in the office and not in the office. I think it's going to, and if you come to the Seattle downtown, there's so many buildings from Amazon. I'm so interested to see how that's going to change over the next few years as far as the layout of each floor and how they run it and how it's tech enabled. But that's, that's super interesting. Um, I am. Um, so I want to get to a question like, how do you start a VC firm? So what I'm hearing is, you know, Zach, you were working in real estate. You're already doing angel investing on your own, if that's using your own money or borrowing it or, or whatnot. And then you get your MBA and then a light bulb goes off. It's like, okay, what if I really formalize this and raise a VC fund? I need to get the right team. And then that could involve working with an ax man like an Aaron who's, who's got the operating chops. Like, and I might be making this might be false what I'm what I just said there, but like talk to that process of you know how you start a VC fund. What's the minimum amount you need to raise, and how you even go about getting that money? You're probably not entirely far off. Um, may not have happened as linearly as 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 you put it out there together, but you know I think it was always something that Zach had thought a lot about, not something I had thought as much about. And when we when we started putting together the early days of Metaprop and we started discussing what this could be, Zach brought up the topic early on that you know we should just we should just build a fund. You know, we've got all this investment activity. We've run And sorry, how'd you guys meet? How'd you guys meet? 
I wish I could tell you a funny story, but we met through a mutual friend who's also uh, an investor in the in the New York area. Um, I was looking for investment and operating opportunities in the prop tech space. And, you know, when you run around New York City, in particular, networking with folks who may have an interest or, or a special point of access into the space, you get Zach Aaron's name, uh, you know, three, four times a day. So, you know, basically I just stalked him for a while. That's how most great relationships start. And I mean, Zach, did you... As you're going to raise money, it sounds like you already had a track record for being a good steward of somebody's money as far as investing it with the angel investments. Is that true or was it it's still something you're like figuring out? Um, I was just investing my own capital and my family's capital. So I had never been a fiduciary before. Um, I actually tried to launch a fund with some partners like right around the time I was going to business school. And I was glad I had that experience because it really showed me what it what it took to launch one. Definitely not as complicated or labor intensive as launching a prop tech company, say, but um, it is definitely a lot of work to get from zero to one. And, uh, you know, you need you need somebody like Aaron, who's really good at company formation type stuff um, and likes doing a lot of that work. You know, I I would not have been able to just spin up a fund based on my track record at the time. I didn't have any exits at the time. I only sort of I wasn't investing necessarily programmatically like we do now. You know, I didn't have a, much of a regard for portfolio construction theory or things like that as it related to my personal angel portfolio. Um, so I think without a real lens toward operations and trying to create a platform business that also that whose main sort of line of work was venture capital investing, I think was a, was a main reason why we were able to get over the hump originally. I think nowadays it's much easier to launch in some ways. Uh, It's, it's certainly more competitive. There's, there's probably, you know, 30 times more early stage funds than there, than there were in the world in 2015. But you do have platforms like AngelList that will take care of the fund administration for really small funds for very, very reasonable prices. So your question about, well, how much can I launch with? You know, you can now launch a fund with a few million dollars in commitments um, and and just do everything on AngelList and they'll, they'll manage that part of the headache for you. Um, you know, for us, we got lucky. We had a number of um, service providers, whether they were lawyers or fund administrators, who were willing to massively discount or delay their fees to take a risk on us because they thought that if we did become a big platform and were loyal to us, then they could gouge us uh, later. And, you know, now we're in this sort of gouging phase as we've had a little bit more success and, you know, <laughs> been able to grow, you know, our AUM a little bit. So, you know, that's a big part of it too, you know, cajoling, you know, you you have to, just like a prop tech company has to sell me on the sort of promise of what their software can become. We had to sell a lot of our service providers on what our AUM could become in order to get them to really engage with us. Um, You know, I um, was lucky that I had money to fall back on, you know, family money to invest these small amounts and build up a meaningful angel portfolio. Um, Most people don't have that. Uh, So, you know, in that case, you have to really, really hustle, start probably doing syndicates first. So dabbling with becoming a fiduciary on a deal by deal basis, which I'd never done. I was always just investing my money and the family's money. So I didn't have to worry. But I I would say if we were starting today, I would spin up a few syndicates on AngelList first to show that not only do I maybe know how to get into a good deal with my own money, but also that I knew how to manage limited partners, even in a super small scale, even if it's only a $200,000 SPV, just to get that part of the track record down before I would launch a you know dedicated fund vehicle. That's really good advice. It's proved some sort of track record of being able to invest one, two, 
even at a small scale, a track record be able to manage like LPs or manage your own syndicate. But then when you really want to go to that next level, it's you definitely need like a partner like like Aaron that can kind of complement everything that you're putting together. What, what anything else, any other advice to give to people that are like thinking or wanting to go down this path? I mean, honestly, you just dropped quite a bit of helpful information. Yeah, I'll always give the advice that Aaron gives, like, make sure whatever you're doing, that it's as narrow as possible, and then narrow it even more. It's like you're squeezing a coal to become a diamond. Just keep squeezing and squeezing and squeezing. And even if you think you can't squeeze it anymore, keep squeezing because eventually it'll become a diamond. And so when we started Metaprop, PropTech was still niche enough where we could say we're the prop tech folks, we could use that as a hook to build a power niche. Now prop tech is too big and too competitive. So if you want to be a prop tech investor, and I talk about this all the time, whether it's with my students at Columbia University or with people who reach out to me, I try to make myself available to you know aspiring executives and, and VCs in our space. You know, Nowadays, you have to be like, I am a specialist on Southeast Asian climate technology as it relates to commercial office. And I know that better than anybody else in the world. And I'm going to use that to build my fund. Right. So it's now we're now in an era of hyper specialization as it relates to verticality within venture. And if you don't want to do that, I argue you have to be hyper specialized horizontally. So what does that mean? It means you're agnostic to the sector, but you're very specialized in the type of technology you invest in and what you do. So I only invest in, say, um, SaaS companies for the insurance industry, or I only invest in market in, 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 in managed marketplaces for healthcare or whatever it is, right? You can consolidate hegemony by building a power niche. That's really good advice. And it supports the point that there's so many funds that are out there. You've got to have that point of differentiation um, and, and really own it. That's um, really well said. Very good advice. So we, we've gone over a little bit, but I'd like to close with one kind of final question. You know, what is the nicest thing anyone's done for you in your professional career? Um, whichever one of you can start first. Wow. Um, my, my path has had a lot of of benefit from other folks, generosity and kindness, Zach being near the top of that list over the years, I have to say, for whatever reason, I, I joke with people, sometimes uh, there's a lot of drama and stuff in my life, but I've also been the recipient of an incredible amount of generosity and support. I, I think one of, the, one of the things that sticks out to me when I think about it is I had first moved to New York uh, at age 22 and uh, you know, the woman who ran the the office uh, for Cushman and Wakefield, the global headquarters where I was working out of, knew that I was really struggling to 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 make it uh, to make ends meet. You know, I was working ninety plus hours a week, and I was working at a bar on Wednesdays and Saturdays, and you know, I was walking to work, you know, uphill both ways, um, uh, you know, to save money on the on the subway fares, and uh, she. I was in a I was in a program that was kind of a in between professional and internship, uh, you know, kind of rotational program. And she she allowed me to expense some of my dinners so that I could eat. Um, so I was paying for I was paying for like street meat and quarters. And once in a Absolutely. while, she accepted <laughs> some of my expense uh, reports so I could eat a turkey sandwich from the local bodega. And I always thought, wow, you know, I may. I, I might not have eaten had it not been for this kind, this kind soul. So uh, uh, I really appreciated her. Uh, but that's just one example of so many of folks yeah. who kind of gave me a lucky break over the years. Especially in those early days, the little stuff, it might not mean too much to them, but it has a big impact. And yeah, the street meat diet might not be sustainable with some of the uh, the sideway, uh, the subway or the, the food carts out there. But uh, very cool. Zach would love to hear from you. There's one that sticks out, you know, I just just thought of it. It was at a point we were really we had really sold this one um, strategic uh, partner who we really wanted to get involved in one of our funds. We'd been courting them for months and months and months, and we thought there was a great opportunity to work with them. 
and they have a portfolio of a handful of different venture funds. And uh, a buddy of mine named uh, Darren Bechtel, who runs uh, Brick and Mortar Ventures, which is uh, another fund in the construction tech space, he went out of his way to go to bat for us um, on behalf of this limited partner uh, to convince them to uh, invest with us as well as him when he could have just said, well, just give me, just give me what you were going to give to those Metaprop uh, folks, you know, uh, and that would have been fair, you know, in love and war. But he went out of his way to uh, to do that and 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 really stick his neck out uh, for us. And I'll I'll always uh, I'll always remember that. And we sent him. Aaron and I are big on you know branding, and and we actually recently our, our most recent swag project we put out a line of Decentraland uh, Metaverse hoodies uh, with Metaprop on it. We'll, we'll mint one for you um, when you put the podcast up. But um, historically, we, we, we'd given people branded vests. And so I sent, and, and we also had in, in our office for, for, for about a year, I'm, I'm a very superstitious person. Um, I'm very into the occult and astrology and ancient religions and things like that. And we had a giant piece of pyrite in our office, which was meant to bring us good luck from a fundraising perspective. And um, when uh, Darren did this good deed for me, I shipped him that pyrite and um, a a Metaprop vest uh, and one of our signed books, of course, PropTech 101, in the mail as a token of my appreciation. So I thought I'd put that pyrite back into the universe to get good vibes from it. So anyway, that's one of the nicest things anyone, I don't know if it is the nicest, but uh, you know, I have too many to count, honestly, thankfully I've been very, very lucky, but that one definitely, definitely continues to stick out in my mind, even though it happened uh, years ago now. That's awesome. I'm glad to see more pyrite back in circulation. So well, well done on that. Um, well, uh, well, this was awesome. I'll be honest. I learned quite a bit on this. So um, I really appreciate you guys taking the time, uh, Zach and Aaron. Um, anything else where people should go if they want to learn more about you all or, or Metaprop or anything that you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. Metaprop.vc is the World Wide Web location that we live in. Uh, also, PropTech 101 uh, is is our Amazon best-selling book we wrote about the category. So, uh, PropTech101.com. And if anybody's in New York and wants to come by and visit us uh, while we're while we're around, uh, please uh, check out PropTechPlace.nyc, and uh, you'll see some fun space uh, innovations um, and events happening in our world. Well, awesome. Well, thank you guys so much for the time. Appreciate it. Thank you. Today's episode is brought to you by no one. Yep, we have zero sponsors. I haven't reached out to any companies, nor would I expect a reputable brand to give me money. But I'll give a few plugs. First, I send a weekly newsletter each Thursday featuring five articles or tools that have helped me. You can sign up for these weekly updates at jimwhuffman.com. Second, for anyone running a startup, if you need help growing your business, check out Growth Hit. GrowthHit serves as your external growth team. After working with over 100 startups and generating a quarter billion in sales for clients, GrowthHit has perfected a growth process that's hell-bent on driving ROI through rapid experiments. Plus, you'll get to work with yours truly. So if you want to work with a team that's worked with startups that have been funded by Andreessen Horowitz or featured on Shark Tank, then check out GrowthHit.com. And finally, I wrote a book called The Growth Marketer's Playbook that takes everything I've learned as a growth mentor for venture-backed startups, and I've distilled it down to 140 pages. So instead of hiring a growth team, save yourself some money, get the book, and you can just do it yourself. I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I'd love to hear feedback. I'm on Twitter at Jim W. Huffman.